Namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu asama sambuddhasa. Namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu asama sambuddhasa. Namo etasa bhagavatu arahatu asama sambuddhasa. Pudangdamang sangang namasami. So I was first introduced to meditation at the ripe old age of 17. And when I came in contact with the Dhamma, I had this very strong feeling that it was like somebody had thrown a match on a bonfire that had been doused by kerosene. You know, so I felt completely ignited with the teachings and absolutely clear that really within a week that the spiritual life was going to be the center of my life. And within a month, I had the very strong feeling or vision or nimitta of being a nun, which was absolutely atypical from coming from a, a Southern California Jewish family, you know, with a personality that had a tremendous love of freedom and nonconformity. So it's like absolutely nothing you could place in my background, my culture, my location, my personality that would give you any inclination that that's where I was heading or going or interested in. And it was very interesting to me from such a young age that, you know, I had this feeling or this longing, you know, all right, so I've come in contact with the teachings and the teachings promise complete liberation. And so I had this sense and I remember thinking, you know, I'm going to get enlightened and then everybody's going to love me. You know, and it was it was as kind of as simple as that. And so there was a sense of, you know, I didn't really have much sophistication about what the path was about or the process was about. But there was a voice of wisdom that was always operating. So during those years, from the time I, I from 17 until I came to the monastery, which was, I was 27, nearly 10 years later, you know, when things were difficult, and particularly the stuff of working out relationships and trying to figure out a livelihood and sorting out the madness that happens in families and, you know, figuring out all the kinds of stuff that gets all knotted up around sexuality, all of that human developmental stuff. When it was really difficult, you know, I would just say, ah, oh, the hell with it. I'm going to go be a nun. <laughs> But there was a voice of wisdom that would keep coming back and said, nah, you know, there is no way you're going to be able to do this if you're running away from anything. So there was a voice of wisdom that kept emerging, that kept me accountable to the developmental work that I needed to attend to and not to use the monastery as an escape. And I'm really grateful for that. I don't know where it came from, but it came, and I'm really grateful for it. Okay? So I have, over the years, developed a much more sophisticated understanding of the different developmental tasks and the way that meditation helps support. Okay? So... I can't remember the lists, and I haven't had a chance to go back and look them up. But there are psychological lists of development that you need to pass through, okay? And there are stages of development, yeah? And if stuff happens, traumatic things happen, at one of these stages of development, you've got a fracture or a weakness, and that'll show up later on in life, okay? 
And so there is absolutely a need to develop a healthy sense of self in the psychological sense of the world, where we know who we are and our boundaries, we have a right relationship with people, we have a sense of what our sexuality is, how it manifests, how it shifts and changes sometimes over decades or less long periods of time. We have a sense of having a livelihood. We have done the work of growing up and have navigated the territory of what it is to be in relationship with ourselves and our families and the world. Okay? This is really important. It's important to know who we are. Like if you throw a a ring around yourself, you know the edges of what belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you. You know, where you can define yourself and locate yourself and where you are not to be found, what is not your business, okay? And a lot of us have issues with this. It's actually not that straightforward. And some of us are masterful at kind of uh, at blending or shape-shifting or taking on the energy of the environment around us. And so it's, it's the, you know, it goes from gray to muck really quickly. <laughs> And yet, the whole human developmental process is a really important process. Now, as a 17-year-old who comes in contact with the Dhamma, I thought, fabulous, I don't need to do any of this work. I can just get enlightened and it'll be done with. Loop, loop, and it's gone. So there's this fantasy or this vision or this deep sense of longing that if one practices diligently enough and correctly enough, then all of one's suffering is going to be ameliorated and it is going to be vanquished. Does that sound familiar? Okay. All right, so let me backtrack, use another analogy and come back. All right. If we break our arm, so I broke my wrist a couple of winters ago because I slipped on the ice. So in Colorado, there's ice, you slip on the ice, you break a bone. I did not go to the monastery. I went to the hospital, you know, and I got a cast. I got a cast because my bone was broken. Now, for most people, that's the right thing to do, right? That's the way we think. When the bone is broken, you get a cast, and you put the bone in a cast. After my bone was casted, after I had a cast on my wrist, then I started doing all kinds of energy stuff and meditation stuff and healing stuff and homeopathic stuff and salve stuff and herbal stuff and meditation stuff and visualization stuff, but I didn't do it before I got the cast on the bone. So we need to work with things at the level that is appropriate, okay? With a broken bone, you need a cast. Once it's cast, then you can do energetic stuff. If you do energetic stuff before you have it cast, it's not at the right level. You're responding <coughs> to something with a, with a remedy that is not intended to help fix the broken bone. Okay? Now, we hear the word self, and we think self is self, self is self, self is self, one self, it's all self, all the same self, and you want to get rid of the self, so out with the self. <laughs> and so we, 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 we diminish and trivialize the developmental work that needs to happen in pursuit of a spiritual longing to transcend what a Buddhist sense of self, which is actually a completely different thing, 
So the Buddhist basis for meditation is, is, is that people start with a developmentally intact sense of self. Now, who do you know? <laughs> who do you know who has a developmentally intact sense of self? So the Buddhist basis for meditation comes at a basic level that many of us have efforts and work to do to actually get there. All right? And then we come with this wonderful enthusiasm that meditation is going to be the thing that is going to sort everything out. And either we feel terribly disappointed because it's not, or we feel that we haven't done it right. And neither are correct, you know? Energy work is not meant to replace the caste. The meditation is not meant to replace the developmental tasks of growing up. Jung used the word individuation, which was the description of this process of growing into a mature person who knew who they were and had their basic developmental tasks attended to. Now... You can be individuated and still suffer a lot. It's absolutely possible because the individuation process does not take us into understanding that inherent is something that is constantly changing. There is no ultimate satisfaction that you can find in things that change. And that in order to be genuinely free from suffering, You have to have insight into this and release the grasping that comes from wrong viewing of seeing things in the incorrect way. So the whole principle of anatta, which is one of the most difficult ones to wrap our minds around because it's counterintuitive. You don't think there's nobody here. There is somebody here. If you pinch it, it hurts. You know, if I poke you, you will register that. There's no, it's not that there's nobody home. It's just that there's nothing that is not dependent upon other conditions that you can locate. So the whole idea of anatta is to take us from making a permanent fixed sense of self and putting a name or a hat or a label on that and saying, that's who I am. You know, my body is changing. It's constantly changing. My moods and feelings are changing. My values are changing. What doesn't change? For some people, gender changes. Sexual orientation changes. Culture identity changes. What doesn't change? You know, so these things that we locate and say, well, no, that's who I am. This is the way it is. This is is not fixed. It changes. So the idea of anatta is, is that the suffering that we experience comes because we have identified and grasped on to the wrong thing. So if we are miserable because we're sick, it's because on some level we have an expectation we shouldn't be. Now, we can certainly feel a lot of pain being sick. That will come with the package that comes when you have a certain amount of, of, of illness and disability and immobility. But miserable is the, is the added extra bit on top of it of not accepting that that's what's happening. You know, it was very interesting. My mother, my mother is, a, is a phenomenal human being. She's incredibly energetic and dynamic and has been her whole life. 
And she's 82. And last year, there's been some things that have happened to her which have been really distressing, some stuff that's going on with her body. It's just not in control in the same way that it used to be. And she's been distressed and out of sorts and beside herself. And it's been really an interesting process to, to, to come into her awakening about how out of control this body thing is. And yet, some of, one of her friends in the last week had a stroke, you know? And half of her body is now paralyzed. And she realized her problem was actually quite trivial in comparison. So, you know, in a minute, your perspective shifts from having, you know, this incredibly difficult thing that you're navigating to realizing, well, actually, it's not so bad. When you recognize the spectrum of what can happen and what other kinds of things that you're up against... Yeah. So when we look at this principle of not-self, you know, what does that mean? It's so difficult to wrap our intellect around it because it's not something that you can conceptualize. What does it mean that there's no self? It means that there's nothing that we can locate or name that isn't dependent on other conditions. There's nothing permanent that abides without being dependent on other conditions. Our body is dependent on food, on health, on breath, on a certain amount of warmth, and in the summer, a certain amount of coolness. It's dependent on water. There are many things that make a body, you know, and there are many factors that contribute to the way that we feel and how we think and what we value. And all of it is shifting and changing and moving. We can't locate something that is permanently fixed. That's where I am. But it doesn't mean that there's that, that, that I don't have any reality. But what it does mean is that when suffering arises, it doesn't belong to you because there isn't a you to locate. So if we have a pain in our knee, usually that's my knee and it hurts me a lot. It doesn't hurt you, it hurts me. But when we shift our focus of attention from it being my pain in my knee to an unpleasant sensation is arising and there is resistance to that unpleasant sensation, it might seem just like an act of semantics that we're just changing the way that we're languaging it. But it has a huge impact in the way that we're relating to it. And so rather than locating ourself around our body parts and the sensations that we have in them, we are noticing this is what is arising. It's arising in awareness, and we can know it in awareness. And we can know our reaction to it, which oftentimes is fear or contraction or not wanting it. But then when we bring awareness to the reaction, that also softens. So when we are working with the experience of anatta, it's not an intellectualization, it's a practice of non-identification with what's arising. So many of us have many kinds of experiences that have been really difficult. And so we have a, a, a feeling of having had a rough time. You know, I have had a rough time, or whatever it was. You know, I've been through a rough time. And that becomes an identity. That is who I am. I am somebody who had a rough time. 
And we can see that, how that shapes who we take ourselves to be. But that rough time is a composite of memory, of experience that happened in the past. It'll have body sensations and thoughts connected to it. But where is that now? It's arising as a thought. It doesn't exist as a permanent entity in me. I can't find that rough time in me. I can't locate it anywhere. So how we relate to what's arising has a huge impact on our sense of either solidifying our identity as somebody who's gone through a rough time or working with it in a way which is liberating and allows us to move out of habits that frees us into something towards something that is more open and loving and accepting. Classically, the images that are used for the uh, anatta is if you have an apple, and in the apple is a seed, and the seed germinates and turns into an apple tree. Is that apple tree different or the same? Well, it's neither. There's a continuum of genetics that the seed passes on, but the apple tree is not exactly the same as the seed, but it gave rise to the conditions to it, make it happen. Yeah? A wave comes out of the ocean. It has all kinds of energy. It comes to a peak and it crashes, and then when it crashes, then it becomes the ocean again. The wave has a distinct manifestation, and yet it's not entirely separate from the ocean. If you take one candle and you light it, another candle, the conditions of the one candle have given rise to the other candle. So there is a connection, but you can't say the flame is exactly the same flame. If you take an orange and take it apart, you have all these different segments, and then you take off the white membrane, which I can't remember what it's called, and you take out the little pips, you take out the fleshy bit from the the skin that holds it together, and you put it all on the table, you have a mess. You don't have an orange. So the orange is the combination of all of those things being together in the right relationship. And when you take it all apart, it is no longer an orange. So the orange is a designation that is related to the parts all coming together. If you take a car and you take off the tires and the the steering wheel and the transmission and the carburetor and the engine and the axles and you take apart the interior, and you take apart the body, and you have buckets for the fluids, and you have boxes for the electrics. You don't have a car. You've got a pile of junk. Okay? So car is a designation that is related to the parts all coming together in a certain time and place. There is no intrinsic car. Car does not exist as a permanent entity. It is dependent on the pieces being all together in the same relationship of time and space. Now, if you had somebody who was an ace mechanic, they could put it all back together again and put the key in the ignition and it would go. 
I wouldn't be able to do it, but a mechanic would be able to do it. Okay? So you can take it apart and you can put it back together again. But with a human being, if you take the limbs and the toes and the bones and the spleen and you take the liquids and you put them in buckets, you know, you wouldn't be able to put it all back together again because there's a life force that connects it all that if you separate it out, it's not possible to put it all back together again. Okay? The point that I was trying to make is is, is that the process of realizing anatta is a liberating one. But it is not the same process that is needed for doing the developmental task to become a whole, healthy, functioning human being. And we get mixed up when we think that the one is going to sort out the other. Because it doesn't. Now, in the world of psychology and in the world of meditation, where we get mixed up is we think that because self and self are the same, then they mean the same thing. Because we think that the stuff that is happening before a person is developmentally intact is not rational, then it is the same as the stuff that's happening when we have transcended the self. Because both are not rational. And we mix up the pre-personal, non-rational stuff with the trans-personal, non-rational stuff. And we think because they're both not rational, then they're the same thing. And it's absolutely not correct. So there needs to be a certain amount of sophistication in our languaging, and our understanding where we're at, and are being able to support each other. Because a person who's doing pre-personal work does not need transpersonal instructions. They need what is useful for them for where they're at. We need what is useful for us where we're at. Now, Jack Engler said in a statement that was really classic, he said, you need a self before you can let go of a self. And then after writing this book and thinking about it for 20 years, he rephrased it. It's not so much that you need a self before you can let go of a self, but the self and the letting go of the self have to develop. It's not like one develops entirely before the other process can begin. So they inform each other. You know, as we have insight into our nature of who we are, that gives us clarity about some of the developmental tasks that we need to do. And as we do this developmental work of growing up into a person where we know our edges and our boundaries, that gives us the capacity to realize these deep insights and sustain the integration of what that means into the rest of our life. Spiritual bypassing is when we use the opportunity of transcendence to avoid our immediate tasks at hand. And it is absolutely endemic in spiritual communities. It happens all over the place. So what is needed, really, is love. Is the kind of love that is warm and accepting and understanding where we're at and not judging 
and yet somewhat sophisticated to be able to bring the kind of care and attention that's needed where it's needed. Yeah. So the way a grandma, you know, if she saw one of her little people with a broken arm, she'd scoop them up and she'd cuddle them and she'd give them kisses as she's taking them to get a cast. (laughs) And then she'd cuddle them and kiss them and feed them nice food and then help them while it's getting healed and it hurts to do all the things that you can do to help on that level. You know, you bring warmth and care and attention right where it's needed. Now, one of the things that can happen in a community, and one of the blessings of a community, is that the community can be a place where people can do some of this developmental healing. If the community is a safe community, a loving community, an honest community, a community based on integrity. Some of these developmental tasks can happen in relationship and community. So if they didn't happen in our families of origin, we can we can we can do that healing later. You know? It doesn't mean that if it didn't happen it will never happen. And so, you know, that's part of the reason why relationships are so important. Because there's an enormous amount of healing that can take place if people bring forward the right care and attention. Somebody agrees. Anyway, I think I'll stop there and open it up for conversation and discussion and see what things are stirred from what I've said. Yeah? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.